This morning we come to the close of the three-week series that uh, Pastor Novenson has been leading us through, this series on the profound and solemn charge found in the book of Proverbs to guard and keep our hearts with all vigilance. This morning we will see that this charge is faithfully obeyed when we welcome a, a precious gift of God into our lives, namely the gift of repentance. Repentance is repeatedly prescribed by God in the book of Jeremiah, uh, and it is carefully described for us in Matthew chapter 18. And so we will turn to those passages this morning to, to learn more about exactly how we repent, specifically how to turn from sin to the Savior in order to guard our hearts. But before we hear the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us turn to him and ask for his help, asking that he would illuminate our hearts and our minds to hear and to believe and to respond faithfully to his word. Let us pray together. Father God, we come before you now, humbly asking that the same spirit that inspired these words would now be at work among us as we hear them read and hear them proclaimed. Father God, would you open our minds and our hearts to receive them, not as the mere words of men, but as they really are, the very words of God. And would you strengthen us to bring forth their fruit in our lives, all to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest? in the kingdom of heaven. And calling to him a child, he put him in their midst, in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is the reading of God's word. Children, you may come forward to meet uh, Mr. Patty at the front. Welcome, everybody. 
How are we doing? Good. Excellent. There is a book called Where the Red Fern Grows, and the main character in it is Billy. He's a boy, and he's got two dogs, and he wants to train them to hunt. He wants to hunt and kill raccoons. But to do it, to train the dogs, he needs a raccoon. So he's in a fix. How's he going to catch a raccoon when his dogs can't help him? Well, his grandpa has this great idea. He says, look, you can do it, but what you got to do is find a log, make a hole in there. Pretend this is a big log right here, okay? And this is your hole. And then what you do is you put some, some nails, you drive them in like this to make the opening small compared to the, the rest of it. So what happens is you get something real shiny. Pretend this is like a gold coin or something, okay? Really shiny. Did you know that raccoons love shiny things? I mean, they love them so much, they don't want to give up and let them go. So guess what you're going to do? Put that shiny thing down in there and then say, here, raccoon, you want one of these? Can you reach in there and see if you can get it? You're going to be perfect, see, because, oh, no, she gets it. Oh, she gets it out. Wow. My word, that's amazing. So you see that if, if the raccoon, though, not being as, as adept, did you put, is there Vaseline here or something? <laughs> no, so somehow you got free, but that raccoon, when he grabs onto that coin, he's stuck. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm usually rooting for the raccoon and not for Billy in situations like this. So what would you say to the raccoon when the next day, a few days later actually, Billy goes out and there's that hole, there's that coin, and guess what's in there? A raccoon. He's grabbing onto that coin and he's not letting go. But here comes Billy's dad, and you know what he's going to do? Kill him. He's going to kill him. So what are you going to tell that raccoon? If you could talk to him, what would you say? Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, you, be you, better, you better run, right? Yeah, that's right. You better say goodbye. Now, but he's looking, at, he's looking at that gold coin, and he says, that is a shiny, beautiful coin. What are you going to tell him? See you later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You too, right? Yeah, but what do you, what's wrong? What's going to happen? If he stays there holding on, he's going to die. Get out. Drop the coin and run. Right? That's what you want to say. Now, sin is kind of like that coin in there. Because do you know that sin leads to death? But repentance means you say, I'm dropping this sin and I'm running to God. Now, let me see if I can make a better example that maybe will fit. Because you're probably not tempted to grab gold coins in little raccoon traps, but you probably have things that your mom and dad have told you not to do. Like, pretend you're at some friend's house, and they're watching a video game that you know, they're playing a video game, that your parents have said, don't watch that, and don't play it. Now, pretty soon, you're looking at it, and you're going, that's pretty shiny, you know? It's exciting. It's fun. I want to play, too. And maybe you even take the console, and you start playing what should you do? You got your hand on that console. You're playing the game. What should you do? Run. Drop, it and run. Drop it and run. That's right. Yes. So, you know, that raccoon was thinking so much about that shiny thing. He didn't realize that he had friends that he could be playing with. It might look great, but he needs to drop it because he's got friends to play with. He's got exploring. Maybe he's going to explore a forest somewhere. He's got stuff to do and food deep probably, if he just stays there, it is so bad. You know what? If you stay with sin, it is not going to end well. But if you drop it and you run to God, there is joy in his presence forevermore. He is the greatest treasure. 
So grab on to him. All right, guys, you can have a seat. Thank you again, brother, so much. We're all your debtors for making what I'm about to say so clear. Allow me to say a word of thanks, please, to Pastor Philip, to Pastor Sam, to your elders, to all of you for allowing me to come. I really am thankful for the privilege of getting to know you as a body and for your studying with me. Thank you very much for this holy, holy privilege. As we close this day, we have been talking about guard your heart, keep it, with all vigilance or diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. To try and make clear what that guarding is actually like, I took us to the 600s BC, to the book of Jeremiah, when the people of God, us, weren't treating their hearts like treasure, but more like trash. And the choices they'd made were awful. If you go through the book and use a red pen, circle the number of times you see the word return, turn, come back, restore. It's the word that was in Jeremiah 3.12 today, return faithless Israel. Here's the word in the Hebrew. I spent $7,000 a year to be able to do this, so forgive me. It's shuv. Arguably, that command appears more times than any other prescriptive command in the whole book of Jeremiah. So here's the conclusion. A repentant heart where you shuv, turn, is a well-guarded heart. Now, Jeremiah uses a logistical term, pivot. Not this way, this way. Turn around, go the other way. That's the word he uses to make a spiritual point. But here's my question as we begin. What's it really like? Can you break it down? Yeah, Jesus did. In one of the most vivid speeches that I think he ever gave, he tells us what repentance is. I want to show you the very prominent place he gives repentance and then the very powerful act that it is. But first, let's pray. Your word stands forever. Five billion years from now, the truths that we study today will still be a part of our lives. Because of its eternality, because of its place in your heart and mind, write it on our hearts and minds. Please, show us Jesus and ourselves. And we ask for this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Look at the prominent place that he gives it by how he answers the question. The disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What a question. They've just asked a kind of question that could only be answered by something that would make the archangel Michael and Gabriel go, whoa, look at you. 
That's what they're asking. Who, who would make that happen? This is higher than Nobel Prize. This is higher than Pulitzer. Than being knighted by the Queen, an Academy Award, a Tony, a Grammy, the Armed Forces Medal of Honor. And frankly, I'm a little amazed that Jesus didn't say, you have no idea what you're asking. Because frankly, in Mark 10, that is exactly what he said when they asked to sit on his right and his left, James and John. And he said, you don't know what you're asking. What a question we might ask. I just want to lose 20 pounds. Could you help me be more reconciled with my family or more peaceful at work, make a little bit of extra money? But as Jesus answers, he is showing them that repentance is on the path to greatness. Now the gospel is right here. And I want you to see it because he's about to say, please hear me, that greatness to him is the exact opposite of what greatness is, I would argue, everywhere else. That's strong, I know. Let me illustrate. What makes Simone Biles the greatest gymnast in the history of the athletic competition? She's more awarded 30 Olympic and World Championship awards for what she has accomplished. What makes Katherine Hepburn the greatest actor in the history of film. She has more Oscars than any other actor has ever acquired. What would make Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Tiger Woods, Bobby Jones, whoever you think is the greatest? The same thing that makes a great doctor in medicine, a great business person in business, a great engineer. Here it is, simply put, in every other realm, you do the least wrong and the most right for the longest amount of time under the greatest number of conditions. That simple. You do the least wrong, the most right, for the longest amount of time under the greatest number of conditions. Makes a great golfer. You don't, you don't want to go to a doctor who does the most wrong and the least right for the longest amount of time. You don't want to go to a restaurant where the chef does the most wrong and the least right for the longest amount of time. It's very simple. And Jesus is about to say, true everywhere else, but not in my kingdom. He's about to teach that greatness comes by being the biggest, fastest, profoundest, even most severe repenter of everybody. Way above Nobel Prize. But Joe, I, I didn't even hear the word repentance here in Jesus' statement of hand amputation, foot severing, eye plucking, health throwing. But the disciples would have. Because you see, this isn't the first time Jesus used this kind of language. The first time was in the Sermon on the Mount, the constitution of the kingdom. He brought it up when he said, you've heard that it is written, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone that looks at a woman and lusts after in his heart is guilty unto hell fire. Therefore, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. It was a vivid picture of repentance. I imagine the apostles hearing this are possibly thinking, oh, there he goes again. Oh, I hope the rabbis don't hear this. This is tough stuff. I call this chainsaw repentance. You can almost hear the in the background. You see, like in Jeremiah, who used a logistical term, shuv, return, turn, Jesus uses logistical terms. Cut, 
gouge, throw, but he pushes them even further. But the gospel's here because he's teaching you, hear me, greatness doesn't mean never failing. Greatness means you know what to do, when you do, who to go to, how to get there, and why. I would argue this is part of the reason it would have been so stunning that the second greatest preacher in the history of the world, second only to Jesus, is the Apostle Paul. I don't think it's exaggerated to say he's a former religious terrorist. Greatness does not stop because we failed. So we begin to see its prominence, but it's not just greatness that it begins to direct us. It also takes us on a path of deep humility. Listen to the passage again. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, I say to you truly that unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. To the 12 most well-taught humans in the history of the world, they sat under the teaching of the Son of God. Jesus just said to them, my good teaching is not enough. I am asking you to change. To be specific, the result of my teaching is not just absorption, it's humility. May I ask you, does your theology make you step up or step down? Does it move you to sense yourself above people or below them? He is teaching that when you really understand him, every one of us who's a true believer in Jesus Christ, every one of us is littler than we think we are. Every one of us is weaker than we think we are. Every one of us should be more dependent than we probably are. Every one of us is less capable than we think we are. I'll state it in a principle. Greatness Graduate level, PhD level spirituality means we finally realize we have never left the nursery. This is why it was so amazing when Dr. Francis Collins was asked to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast, the director of the Human Genome Project, working his career in great measure to translate DNA, stood up and before he began, he took out a guitar and simply began to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know and the place froze because he knew he'd never left the nursery. It also means that you realize your diaper is as smelly as anybody else's. Greatness is a step down. This is the one body of truth, Christianity, and the word of God that the more you understand, the less adequate you sense yourself to be. The more you grasp, the more childlike you become. In other words, if you meet a spiritual big shot, at best, they're terribly immature. At worst, they're dangerously foolish. If they think they're in a big shot place, they're on their way to collapse. 
Jesus is teaching us here that spiritual greatness feels like this, not I'm strong. You feel like a weak child dependent upon him. It's deeply dependent weakness. This is why my heroes, Andrew Murray said, it's not sin that humbles you, but grace and grace alone. Jonathan Edwards, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. Jack Miller, grace flows downhill. Augustine, should you ask me what's the first thing in religion, I should reply, the first, second, and third thing therein is humility. A prominent place, this is the path to greatness and humility. But one more, help. It helps the repenter, but the stunning thing that Jesus is about to say, by where he brings this up and how he speaks of it, it doesn't just help the repenter. It helps others. Listen to it. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one through whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into fire of hell. See that you do not despise these little ones. First, hear the help. Receive or welcome these little ones. That's helpful. Glad you're here. Welcome. Second, the warning. Don't cause them to stumble. Positively put, help them stand firm. It's so dangerous that he says, tie a millstone around your neck and throw it in the sea if you do. When I hear things like that from Jesus, I want to say, please help me not do that. But if you've been asleep, please listen. Wake up. Note when he brings up this cutting, throwing, gouging. It's right in between verse 6 and verse 10, and he speaks about protecting children twice. In verse 6, don't cause them to stumble. Verse 10, don't despise them. Here's the point. This cutting, throwing, gouging, this is not a new idea separate from the other. He's continuing his train of thought. You want to help little ones not trip? I'll tell you how to do it. You want to buttress them? You want to put rebar in their spiritual life? You want to aid children? It rests right here. You show them what a real Christian does with real sin and a real Savior when they really fail and they really apply the gospel right in the midst of it. You'll show them how to stand firm. Or put another way, you want to help people not sin? Show them what Jesus gives to a failure. This is the reason I think this book has so many stories. You could put them in one or two columns. The people who really got the gospel and repented quickly, deeply, profoundly, 
and the ones who didn't and hardened and got more and more mediocre. Let me try and illustrate this. A friend of mine who taught me a great deal, in fact, I'm still in ministry in great reason because of him, was a pastor in our own denomination, and he fell. He became addicted to drugs, was disciplined by the church, and left. And I called because I cared for him. And he said to me, I'm staying in the church because I want to visit all the people and repent personally for what I've done. This is going to sound like exaggeration, but I'm not. My wife and I spent our vacation. We bought plane tickets and flew because I wanted to be with him and thank him. We did. We flew. We went. And I looked him in the eye and I told him this. You've taught me more in your failure than you ever did by any of your sermons. Because he stood so firmly in God's favor that for the following months and years, he could face his failure because he stood in God's favor. He could turn toward his failure and say, I'll deal with it with you. I'll deal with it with you. I'll deal with it with you. Follow the pattern again. You stand in his favor so you can face the failure. You don't live in the failure and try and somehow find his favor. True repentance comes not to get forgiveness, but because you've got it. So do you begin to see its prominence? This is why the 95 Theses in 1517, written by Martin Luther and were nailed to the door at Wittenberg, start number one. Luther wrote this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers be one of repentance. Paraphrase. Repentance is not a neighborhood we visit occasionally. We live on the corner of Faith and Repentance Street. It's our address. Now look at the powerful practice, if you can see the prominence. Does it have that prominence in your life? In the powerful practice, notice first that it's powerfully hopeful. The hope might escape you as you hear language like hand amputation, foot severing, eye gouging, hell throwing. It can overwhelm our thinking. But in verse 8, it's in a particle of speech. In the Greek, it's two particles. In the English, it's one. Here it is in the English. If. He repeats it in verse 9. If. If your hand, if your foot, if your eye causes you to sin. Do you know what he's teaching? Greatness is so hopeful because it's not always preventative. Oh, he does want to prevent us from sinning. Yes, but it's not always. He doesn't hear say, never fail. Never sin. Never do wrong. It's not only not always preventative, greatness is also not always progressive, which is, it is progressive, but here he's not teaching that. It's not always, always upward, always forward, always deeper. Now it is that, but that's not what he's teaching here. Here he's teaching greatness is preparative. He's preparing you for sin. Let me say it straight up. He expects you to fail. 
but he wants you to know what to do when you do. That's why greatness is being the biggest, fastest, deepest, profoundest repenter. It's not doing the least wrong, the most right, for the longest amount of time under the greatest number of conditions. It's being so convinced as a Christian that you're more defined by the righteousness that's been given to you from him that you can face the, last, the lack of righteousness in you. Let me try and be clear. Jesus didn't teach moralism. He did not. He didn't teach relativism. People smarter than me have pointed out, this is what moralism is. Sin is so important to not be done, and holiness is so important to be done, that if you sin, you matter less to God. You matter less to the church. You matter less to life. If you did that, you matter less. That's moralism. Relativism says, everybody sins. Everybody sins. We all do it. So sin matters less. Jesus says, you are both wrong. You matter so much. You are made in the image of God. There is not a single angel that has ever been described as an image bearer of God, but you are. You are. And sin matters so much that the incarnation, the humiliation, the execution and crucifixion at the cross, the unjust trial, the resurrection, the ascension and session in measure were because of the sin that's in your heart right now. All it took for God to create was to say, let there be. But all of those were required to give you his righteousness. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 is so astounding that God made him, Christ, who had not sinned, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of Adam? No, no. The righteousness of God. Do you understand that he's given you that record? So we don't repent to get it. We repent because we got it. This means spiritual greatness is for anyone that truly believes and repents. Sin doesn't put anyone beyond the greatness. And it also means giftedness, accomplishment, and achievements have no part in what Jesus calls greatness. You don't have to be as articulate as Johnny Erickson Tata or as brilliant as R.C. Sproul. Possibly right now, you're on the verge of greatness, and it has to do with the secret in your heart that you know. Maybe your mate doesn't. Maybe your kids don't, or your parents, or your siblings. They don't know. Because you're afraid if they did, there's no telling. He already knows. He's already died for it. Are you living more in your righteousness or in his? Listen, repentance isn't holding your breath. It's not this. Oh no, I sinned again. It's finally breathing. I sinned, but you have paid for it all. Do you see the power of that kind of hope? It's truly remarkable. Let me try and make it clear with an Old Testament example. 
I'm going to deeply simplify it, no doubt. If you're an Old Testament scholar, forgive me, but I'm going to simplify the whole sacrificial system when I say when you came to worship in the Old Testament, you had to bring a sacrifice commensurate with your condition. And if you didn't bring a sacrifice commensurate with your condition and offered that sacrifice to the priest, when the priest went in and brought the sacrifice, if it wasn't right, he died. There was no margin for error. So there were doves and there were lambs and there were bulls. So please, this is lighthearted, but stay with me. So you wake up Sunday morning, you're getting ready to go to worship and it's a great day. And you've had a wonderful quiet time. You can't wait to get to corporate worship, but in between the cup of coffee and the open Bible, you lose your temper with the people in your family and you say things on the way to the bathroom that no Christian ought to say. And now it has moved from a dove day to a one bull day. On the way to the car, there's a flat tire and you start again to utterly lose it. And it's again, now it is a two bull day. When you went to church carrying two bulls, people could look at you and go, bad morning, huh, Joe? You couldn't look at them all when they said, how you doing? And say, I'm fine. I'm just fine. Can we please take Tim Hansel's definition of fine? F-I-N-E, fouled up, insecure, neurotic, and exhausted. I'm fine. I'm really just fine. You couldn't lie. And this brings me to the next. It's not only powerfully hopeful. It's powerfully honest. This is some of the most shocking language you'll find Jesus using. Every great orator knows this. You save your strongest language for your biggest point. And boy, he gets out the big guns here. This is also an oral culture. This is not a visual culture. They've never seen a Peter Jackson or a Weta special effect. So when he starts talking about self-amputation, you better believe it was arresting. Can I give you some suggestions as to why he is being this forthright, if I can say this honest, about sin? He knows that we will put somebody else's blood on the floor in a second and never put our own there. And so he starts by saying, you deal with you. Second, he knows that from Eden, we have been hiding. And he's saying, not in my kingdom. No hiding. Third, he wanted to populate his kingdom with people who are more offended by what we've done wrong than what anybody else has done wrong. Fourth, I think he's dishonest because he knows the mediocrity we as adults rationalize will be institutionalized by our kids. Mark my words. The mediocrity that we rationalize, our kids will institutionalize and walk away from the church. Don't miss this. Ask yourself in Jesus' words here, who's the surgeon and who's the patient? You're both. Do you know what he's saying? Beat your critics to the punch. Don't wait until a mate, your parents, the kids, a sibling come up to you with a bandsaw or a bowsaw in their hand and start <laughs> beat them. Start the chainsaw and deal with yourself. 
Can you imagine what it would be like if every one of us walked into the kitchen and saw our parents, our mates, our siblings, kids, crying? And you come over and you go, honey, honey, what you, what's the matter? And the person looks up in tears and said, I just, I'm repenting of not loving you well because Jesus loves me so well. I'm so sorry. Do you notice the honesty also when he doesn't say, cut off the bulbous, cankerous, pussing tumor? He says, cut off the hand. Cut off the foot. Pluck out the eye. Question, who made the hand, foot, and eye? God. Question, what did he call them before the fall? Good. You see what Jesus is saying? Greatness isn't just repenting of the obvious wrong things. It's repenting of your abuse of the good things he's given you. So for example, you may have the gift of being very analytical. You can solve any problem within a five to ten minute time. But if you're not careful, you leave people in your wake because you don't care very much about hearts. Or you may be the other way. You're so intuitive and sensitive and caring about people that frankly, sometimes if you don't take care, you can end up like being with you is like being with somebody who's just ate a peanut butter and honey sandwich. Everything's sticky. Or maybe you're really articulate. You can win an argument when you know you're dead wrong. You can still win. Repent of abusing the good things that God has given you. Let me give two closing illustrations. We'll be done. Do you know what's part of the proof to me that we don't believe that repentance is as prominent as Jesus says it is or as powerful in its act comes from this? History lesson. What book was published in about 396 A.D.? And as best as I can discern, I may be wrong, some of you may know better than me, has been consecutively published since then. It was written by a seated bishop and enumerated his sins and trespasses. Can you say the name of the book out loud? Confessions of Augustine. Try and find a book like that for sale on any Christian webpage now where a Christian would say, let me tell you, everything I've done wrong, you ain't going to find it. Because our righteousness matters far more to us than his. And it was Augustine who took Paul's statement about Christ's imputed righteousness and slammed an exclamation point after it and said, we're to live by this. Now let me show you how it can help others, and I close with this. This is an illustration from a book called PK, written by Paul Moody in this chapter. This is Dwight Moody's son. Dwight had sent him to bed after he had done something wrong, but Dwight had overreacted. And in the presence of his friends, sent Paul to bed. And I want you to see the prominence and the power and the help an act of repentance by a great Christian leader was to his son. Listen. This time I retreated immediately and in tears, for it was almost unheard of 
that he, that's Dwight Moody, should speak with such directness or give an order unaccompanied by a smile. I had barely gotten to my little bed before he was kneeling beside it in tears and seeking my forgiveness for having spoken so harshly. Half a century must have passed since then, and while it's not the earliest of my recollections, I think it's the most vivid that I can still see the room in twilight and the large bearded figure with his great shoulders bowed above me and hear the broken voice and tenderness in it. Before then and after, I saw him holding the attention of thousands of people and asking the forgiveness of his unconsciously disobedient little boy for having spoken harshly seemed to me then and seems to me now a finer and a greater thing. To it I owe more than I owe to any of his sermons. For to this I'm indebted for an understanding of the meaning of the fatherhood of God and a belief in the love of God had its beginnings that night in my childish mind. That's the power of the repentance to help. That's the prominence it's to have. Would you come to him now, to his welcoming arms as we sang? No secrets. Let's draw near. Let's pray. Let us sing, though fierce temptation threaten hard to bear us down. For the Lord, our strong salvation, holds for us a conqueror's crown. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to Lord, please, teach us to be the biggest, fastest, deepest repenters because your work rules us more than ours. We pray through Christ. Amen.